Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Before we get started, we would like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Exam Master. Today, we have the special privilege of speaking with PA Kathy Peterson, Associate Professor Emeritus with the University of Utah Department of Family and Preventive Medicine. Kathy is a longstanding leader for the PA profession who has served in a multitude of ways, including her focus on global health, community health, philanthropy, and scholarship. Kathy is a 1979 graduate of the University of Utah PA program. She began her career in medicine with nursing and ultimately became one of the profession's beloved partners. She and her husband, Don, have contributed to the PA Foundation and NCCPA Health Foundation, including the Kathy J. Peterson Endowed Fund to promote equitable care, which has resulted in numerous grants to fund important work, and her dedication to scholarship has worked to further our understanding of the importance of global health. Her clinical contributions as a PA have had enormous impact in the community health setting, as well as in many countries throughout the world. The full list of her accomplishments is quite large and may be found on our website at papathpodcast.com. Kathy, thank you so much for joining Steph and I today to talk about your career as a PA and all the contributions you've made both locally in Salt Lake City and in Utah and also globally as well, and for the profession too. We'd like to start with our typical question, which is to ask you about your path to becoming a PA. Well, you know, being a woman growing up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, there were maybe five occupations you'd think of, teacher, flight attendant, being a nurse, Peace Corps at the time. And so I just decided to be a nurse. And then it was later on after I was an operating room nurse, which was really quite fascinating, particularly at Stanford where I worked, where we did a lot of cutting edge things that go on today even. But then um, I started reassessing it, which I guess people do when they're close to their 30s. And I looked at a bunch of careers. I took a career test and it had it broken in at that time into men and women. And it said, if I was a man, I should be a cartographer. So I thought, well, that was interesting. And it said, I shouldn't be a nurse because I was too independent. (laughs) So I thought that was funny. (laughs) So I looked into bioengineering and some things that I turned out to be really dry when you looked at the textbooks and liked clinical medicine. So I looked into... Well, I was a nurse, so I looked in a nurse practitioner school, but I was a three-year diploma nurse, so I had to start all over again, according to the nursing profession. So that would have been five years of work. And at the time, if you were a nurse, you could do six weeks and you'd be a nurse practitioner. Later on, some nursing programs just rolled nurse practitioner into their regular nursing curriculum, you know, and everybody was a nurse practitioner, but that all changed, as you have seen. So anyway, I discovered the PA profession, and when I went to check out the program the day before the interviews, which I guess interviewees don't do anymore, but, you know, I wanted to make sure I knew where it was, and I ended up talking to one of the staff, and he later on said she knew more about PAs than anybody I've ever talked to, you know, but it was such a long time ago. I was in the 10th class, and they started in the 70s, so that was 1979. You know, it was a big leap of faith. I always tell the students that, but they're all like, where's my job? You know, so it's kind of different now. So anyway, that's how I ended up becoming a PA, which I was very narrowly focused in the operating room. And then I ended up being a family practice PA, which was very broad and very intriguing. How was that adjustment for you going from the OR 
to family practice and what were some of the challenges you had and some of the rewards that you noticed about the different focus? Well, I liked it much better because you got to look at the whole picture and I like problem solving and analyzing. And so in my career, I always liked the really hard patients, the ones with lots of problems, lots of medicines, even though eventually I didn't end up with enough time to see them. But that's what I, it really intrigued me is how it all fit together. So that wasn't a hard leap at all. It, the harder leap was trying to figure out how to diagnose because of the time we were in to take the history, take the physical exam and the assessment the doctor will do half of and you do half of and the plan you do 25%. Uh, we used to have these charts on the the wall and I'd always conceive of it that way, you know. So to make the first diagnosis I ever made outside of school, you know, was just really red letter day, which is very different from today. <laughs> so that I think was the hardest part was teaching myself medicine, more or less. <laughs> sure. And did you find initially in your family practice, the physicians, I, I presume, forgive me if I'm wrong, but even in 1996, when I graduated from PA school, it was a male-dominated profession for PAs and medicine as well. It's since completely flipped. But for you, what were some of those experiences like as a young woman entering into the profession and family practice? Well, that's funny because it was sort of the era of women's lip, but at the time, the applicant pool was military, you know, so I was one of four people in my class, four women, that is, and everybody else was military or athletic trainers or x-ray techs and all kinds of things. But I grew up with six brothers, so I really never noticed any of that. I just go after what I wanted. And, you know, after I think I mentioned to you previously, I had a job for the first year at an HMO, which... Nobody knew what it was at the time. I remember them asking me at the interview, and I pulled from the recesses of my mind what an HMO was. Anyway, I really liked that job, but then they had to let go the last people hired because they lost their Medicaid population. So that was really devastating. But then I decided where I wanted to work, which was the community health center. So I just went down there, and they didn't even have a job, but I sort of talked my way into it. And I uh, ended up working for them for decades and decades, 30-some years. Did you develop a passion for the community health centers through some experiences in the OR previously as a nurse, or did that come from other life experiences? Oh, probably growing up Catholic, I would guess. I don't know. I always like cultures. I mean, you can see from all the global health work, I like differences in diversity and cultures and the way people think. And then I have a real passion for developing resources for people that don't have them. So I always called myself a fourth time social worker, you know, at the CHCs because I was uh, doing medicine, but then I was sort of, I want to say forcing people to see patients that, you know, had disastrous problems, but we all developed all these skill sets and resources that sometimes we'd share with each other. Like I know a doctor at this hospital who wants his residents to see really interesting medicine cases. So so I like, okay, I'll call him, you know, on this patient with the macroadenoma of his pituitary that waited five years and so can't hardly see even anymore, you know, that kind of thing. Then he came back to me to replace his pituitary with all the medicines needed. So that's the kind of stuff that I would end up with that I always found so challenging and you had to just keep learning and reading and asking people. 
So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your foray into education, which then I believe sort of really led to some of the opportunities that you developed for students in doing some global health work. So what was it that kind of gave you the education bug? And then how did that kind of roll into some of the, the global health and international work that you've done? Well, the PA program director at the time developed this really cool program called Clinical Associates, and he published an article on it. And it was to make clinical faculty feel more like they want to stay, you know, and to keep them. So it gave you a whole bunch of other people that would teach and develop clinical experiences. And at the time, we did their site visits and orientation visits and things too. So it took a big load off the clinical team. And so I was one of the first ones, the first three that they chose. So they picked people from the community, mostly in family practice, if that was possible. And then you would take a small group of students through their whole, actually their whole year. Nowadays, we just do the didactic year. And then we just practice everything that they're learning. And then they go to Friday clinics in the second half of their didactic year. And then we do all their soap notes in the small groups and we just build on it, build on it, build on it, you know, till they get to where they can be practitioner essentially, you know, so they're more ready to go out in their clinical year. So that's how I got started. At, that was a 10% time. But then I ended up being involved with so many other things because the, the PA profession was growing so much and so dynamic. And so that was really fun for to be involved with so many different aspects of it, developing curriculum and advocating for all kinds of things and working in the Utah PA Academy and eventually became president, passed legislation. And, you know, so it was a real dynamic time. Probably still is for different reasons. You know, that's one of the things that we always recommend to students is that, you know, you just show up, right? You show up and you volunteer and opportunities beget opportunities. And it seems like that certainly has been the, has been the case for you. So you had the opportunity then to develop some opportunities for students then to get involved in some international work and international rotations. And can you talk a little bit about some of those global opportunities that you've had? Well, I can't take credit for it all. You know, the program director really jump-started it all with a friend of his who had worked internationally his whole career, which at the time is, was pretty remarkable. And that's still the case. So it's maybe been 40 years that he's been in every aspect of how do you work internationally. So he would tell us all these stories and ask us these provocative questions like, what do you do with a refugee camp? When you have thousands of people, what's the first thing you think of to keep them healthy? And nowadays, I could answer that easily. But at the time, it was like, I didn't think of water and sanitation. <laughs> no, but that was what it was. Anyway, he worked in Papua New Guinea at the time, so he convinced us to have an exchange program with students going back and forth. And so I was busy working clinically, so I wasn't as involved with this, but I ended up taking five weeks and taking a student to Papua New Guinea. So that was very eye-opening experience. And so from then on, we just kind of built on it. Then this particular person moved on to Thailand, and so we developed the Thailand elective and I was more instrumental with that, with jump-starting it. And then we sort of create all these things, and then we give them to other faculty people to run. So then after that, then Nepal had a initiative. They wanted someone to work on workforce issues with them. So they have a PA-like provider 
and really, I think it was Tony Miller who told us about this opportunity and really nobody else answered the call. So we ended up working with Nepal and all these workforce issues for a couple of years. And then our Ghana rotation, which someone else ran, ended up being canceled because of Ebola. And so we ended up in two months time, I developed a whole Nepal elective, which was really hard over Christmas to say. But that was real successful. So that's run for now eight or 10 years. And and then just last year, we kind of passed it on to other faculty. We had one person who was a graduate and he had worked in Nepal for, been there 60 or more times. And so he's our rural portion. So he's really great. And then we have another faculty person who does the urban part. Ah, let's see, does that cover them all? We had uh, we have other rotations at the Utah PA program like Guatemala, but I always intended to go on that, but I haven't been on that one yet. But another person runs that. I'm struck by my own experiences in Honduras and in Panama. There's always these cases that kind of stay in your soul after you've done that work that really, you know, just kind of put into perspective for me how truly fortunate we are, even though we have a health system that is clearly fractured, but we still have a health system where people aren't walking 10 miles to be seen for a a major laceration. I wonder if you have any particular stories that stick out in all the work that you've done so far. I guess just like with global health, where I was pretty naive to begin with, being like in Papua New Guinea, that's probably when I realized there's so many things that go into this. You can't just do healthcare. You have to think of transportation, government, politics, money, healthcare providers. This whole big system, you know, has to work. So I think I saw it the most when I was at the Kokori Camp Hospital. And it's like, there's no doctors. If there are any, they're in the urban big city. These people, even if they were a nurse and their child was sick, they never saw a doctor. It was just too mountainous. There's too many languages. Everybody's on foot. There's no transportation. When I'd be in the international airport part of Papua New Guinea, I'd think almost everybody in this whole country will never set foot in this. But anyway, some of the cases that just stick with me, and there was one baby that was brought by canoe days, because that's how they count days. And it was like a day and a half canoe day. It was a premature baby. You know, the nurses were really, they did everything, actually. They deliver babies. They do everything. We were trying to help this dehydrated baby that was sick and we were premature and not breathing well. And I mean, even the nurse finally said, well, how about an inner osseous? And I said, well, yeah, I thought of that, but you know, we don't have the equipment for that. But we tried to do various things. And my, my uh, mentor from the guy that worked in Papua New Guinea, he told me later on, he said, don't ever waste equipment on a 30-week baby. You need it for other people that are going to survive. You know, and that was kind of striking. And then another guy had fallen off a roof and he they had one wheelchair for the hospital, the whole hospital, and they all shared it. And my friend told me, well, he wouldn't even be alive if he didn't have a family who was taking care of him. He never saw a doctor, never had an x-ray, never had anything, but he was paraplegic. Another guy came with an Achilles tendon rupture and he limped away. There was nothing we could do for him. And it was just too sad, you know? It was just such different medicine. Everything was from the earth. We were the only people with garbage. 
and there was no refrigeration. So we had to open a can, eat that, and then the rest of it would spoil. But everybody had bamboo baskets and everything that they did was from the earth. So it was really the Stone Age there. Everybody had malaria. They all chewed beetle nut and their teeth were stained. And it was kind of a dangerous place too. It strikes me that when I first went to PA school, public health was not a real big focus at PA school. But probably as a PA educator in the early 2000s, we really started to see a push to a broader concept of health in PA education. I wonder if you you saw that yourself as an educator and you know some of these experiences led you to kind of encourage or advocate for the curriculum to change as well. Well, I was tasked to do the white paper for the profession for APAP, which is now PAEA. And that was one of my questions in a survey that I developed for my master's program was, uh, where is it all of this taught in PA schools? And so I had surveyed a lot of the country, you know, but it was interesting. It was all over the place in infectious disease and sometimes public health. But yeah, I've been advocating for that for a long time, but I've seen that gradual evolution too, is that it just naturally seemed to take place, particularly because many schools are in academic centers, and then we become masters and now probably doctorate trained. So, you know, it seems like that's a natural part of the curriculum. In our department, we have the Division of Public Health, so it's like kind of a natural fit. Sure. So we, we developed a dual degree for MPH and PA in the last, well, some ones it worked out for years, but it did just finally become a reality in the last year or two. Let's take a quick break for a word from our episode sponsor, Exam Master. Exam Master works with physician assistant educators, providing tailored solutions to help improve admissions, retention, student progression, and board pass rates. Exam Master's Physician Assistant College Admission Test, the PACAT, is an entrance exam designed to help PA admissions departments measure applicants' knowledge in key prerequisite science subjects critical to on-time progression. Recent educational research at St. Elizabeth University's PA program demonstrates a strong correlation between the PACAT exam and students' first semester performance. Access the research report at pa-cat.com and click on the Resources tab. And be sure to meet us at the PAEA conference in October. Kathy, you had mentioned us earlier in some of your writings that the global health experiences that you had, coupled with the community health center work that you did, really started to melt together because a lot of the things you see in community health centers are global in nature. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, people always say, why do global health? You can do the same thing here. You know, and you can, you can do local, global, but it is interesting. It gives you such a perspective, like toward the end of my time at the CHCs where we had seen all the refugees throughout the years, Bosnia, you know, all on and on and on, Russians, Vietnamese, you know, to begin with, we saw the Southeast Asians from the Vietnam War and some of them were just tragic and a lot of African and the lost boys from Africa. But toward the end, the Hispanics sort of took us over you know, having been in some of the countries in Central America, you could just see where they come from and you understand them better. Also, we all ended up speaking Spanish if we wanted more money in our salaries. So I enhanced my Spanish skills. But anyway, some of the same diseases that you see where we've been with our students, you'd see in our patients. I didn't diagnose this, but I 
figured out this guy eventually had leprosy, a new case of leprosy. So that was surprising. But then you go overseas and they have signs everywhere saying, look for these signs of leprosy because it's so common. And TB isn't that common here, but otherwise, it, you know, people are vaccinated against TB. Many other countries and there's whole chest disease hospitals and TB sanitariums and, you know, and people with really bad complications that you don't even envision here at all. This one fellow from Papua New Guinea, he came here as our exchange program and he was on a bench outside our homeless shelter and he said, this is like being in heaven. If I could live here, I could live on this bench and they'd feed me and I'd have a place to be. <laughs> so it just is such a different perspective. But then you learn all these diseases that other people don't think of, you know, like I had a whole file on all these countries. So I'd look down it and I'd go, okay, this country in Africa, you look for schistosomiasis. So I asked them about blood in their urine and it's like the father has it. Then I go try to figure out how do you look for this? And the lab person doesn't have any idea. So we have to figure it all out. And then it came out positive. And then the whole family turned out they all have blood in their urine. So they all had to be treated. It's just like we're such an interdependent community, the world. And so there's diseases that come here and our diseases go there. So it's kind of handy to know about international medicine and what a lot of the world lives like, you know, on $2 a day or less. I have a million stories, you know, on different, mostly infectious diseases, I guess, that are interesting because chronic disease management came late in the game to many countries overseas because they didn't have the infrastructure and they just try and stay alive that long to have a chronic disease. Yeah. I think, you know, you're sharing this perspective that I share. I remember my first global mission trip to Honduras, a father hiked with his daughter for 10 miles to get to the American base camp. She had been chopping wood. She was nine years old. She'd been chopping wood for the family and she had missed and, and cut down to the bone in her index finger. And, you know, they hiked for 10 hours to get basic care. It took them, you know, all day to get there, to get it cleaned out and, and to try to get it sewn up. And, you know, you, you just think about the, these cases that you see and the impact that they have. Like we have such little impact on them because this is their life. This is what they experience. It's just another day. But for us as healthcare providers in a very wealthy nation, these are not the typical things that we experience unless you're in occupational health, rural health, maybe you might see that a little bit more in the farming communities where, you know, the work has to get done. So injuries wait, but in the cities, you certainly don't see it to that level as much unless you're dealing with CHCs, homelessness, things like that. When I, I was in Honduras with shoulder to shoulder or long ago before I got so involved with global health, they took us to see a hospital. And it was like, it's only if the doctors felt like being there, you know, if your patient would get seen. And they had, they'd spent a lot of money trying to get to the hospital. But then we went through the ER and this guy who was yellow, he just reached out and they said, people don't go to the ER unless they're going to die. You know, that's the way it is there. And he just looked at me like beseechingly like I was the last person on earth that was ever going to help him live. So that kind of stays with you too. We'd like to talk a little bit about your writing. I think most in the PA profession know that you are a prolific writer and your uh, your bibliography uh, is expansive. 
So talk to us a little bit about just your foray into writing and the importance of writing and how you feel some of the research that you've done and the research that is ongoing is important to the PA profession and to healthcare in general. Well, I have to think of how I even got started on this. I mean, I just started on this global health interest one day. I don't know. It was like I was being inspired or something that I decided to apply for this committee, that these PAs who like global health just sort of stuck under a leadership committee through AAPA. And so I ended up on their first international subcommittee. And I was with some really cool people who really knew about working overseas and living over there and said, you really can't do anything unless you're there six months. You know, don't even bother to try and go for these short-term things. But then we promulgated some ethical guidelines and things, which later on got more expanded. Anyway, through all of that, I ended up on that committee. Then I ended up on the APAP PAEA committee and did the white paper for the professional with a team of people. And, oh yeah, Global Perspectives was already ongoing. It had about three or four or five authors. So I asked Dave Asprey. I wrote him a letter about wanting to be the, an editor for that. So then I promulgated all kinds of articles. So like social accountability in PAs, fit for purpose workforce, hosting global visitors, because I saw all kinds of, well, from all these committees, we recognized that people would on their own go to ambassadors for countries, or they'd on their own host global visitors and not have any kind of data or programming, you know, to do it that was consistent. And then people would want to come here. And then how do you do that? So we wrote articles all about that. And then I wrote about various countries. Well, I didn't do the writing. I edited mostly like Journey as a PA to the Kingdom at the Top of the World about Nepal. That was really a good one. We did rainforest PAs about the PAs in Papua New Guinea, which are called HEOs, Health Extension Officers. So I did that for about six years and did a lot of editing with it. And then with JAPA, they sort of came and asked me to start this new department, probably through Rod Hooker's efforts, I would guess, you know, over time that he convinced them we needed to have this. And, and some of it was for people overseas to have a chance to publish, but then I need to get them a, a U.S. author and them. So that's sort of the idea. So we sort of have a template, they could follow it or not. And then they sort of give us an update on their country every five years, which there's about 60 countries that have PA-like providers in the world out of 200-some countries. And in Africa, they outnumber doctors in about nine countries. And so it's like when I talk to the PA students, they have no idea about any of this. It's just so surprising to me, you know, that it's so unrecognized. And so that's been a kind of a gap that the World Health Organization has moved along, but it hasn't quite gotten to where I think PAs would like them to be in terms of recognizing our profession and realizing its intrinsic value, you know, to so many countries. So there's a curriculum project going on with the international PA educators for the world, comparing curriculums of all the different types of PAs, of which there's 35 different titles, if you can believe it. And that's what makes it so difficult. And I'm not sure, at least Rod thinks we could probably never come up with a single acronym, although people have tried. And when you write about it, you have to pick one, you know? And so then you're kind of stuck with, do I do non-physician this or that? Or, you know, what do I call them? 
and APCs is more of a nursing term and, you know, so it's an ongoing discussion. Well, it becomes difficult because the health systems are so different from country to country. And I'm sure while the underlying tenets and principles of the way that PAs or, you know, whatever our counterparts are in different health systems are, function is very similar. There are nuanced differences that make it a little bit hard to fit all the different shaped pegs into a single hole, right? Well, as Ruth Balwig would say, it's like the country adapts the PA profession. You know, it doesn't adapt to our model. So like in some African countries, they're doing C-sections. It's a very big part of being their healthcare provider, which are usually clinical officers. And see, because we have so many names and kind of a loss of visibility, we end up being overlooked in so many areas. And one big one that really just has bothered me for years is the SEEDS program, which they will do loan repayment. And people want to work overseas. If you ask PA students, they're very interested in this. So if we could just be part of the SEEDS program, I've written to them. And so they have midwives, nurses. Well, they start with just doctors. Then they added midwives and nurses. And they had three countries. And I said, in these three countries, here's the name of the PAs. And we could be part of this too, because it'd be so great for loan repayment. You'd go work for two years, but I've never gotten anywhere with it because we're just too fragmented sounding. You know, they just can't understand us. And so I've tried to work through IPA and E in the last year or two, and they kind of put it aside. (laughs) But anyway, those are kind of the gaps that you end up with that it would be nice to have some kind of poor organization policy surrounding so many pieces of this. Kathy, one of the things that you have done that not very many PAs have done is you have really focused some of your life's work on philanthropy. Part of that is your NCCPA Health Foundation, Kathy Peterson Grant to Promote Equitable Care, the Equal Access to Higher Education Scholarship that you have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about not only that opportunity, but also just the whole thought process around developing a philanthropical approach to promoting the profession and aligning it with health access? Well, you know, I was once a speaker for a philanthropy group, and so I studied all of this, and then I told them, well, you know, really what it is is it's all about the five love languages because my husband happens to be a gift giver, (laughs) and so it's all about him. You know, I don't have anything I can't take responsibility for putting forth a scholarship. I'll design it, you know, if he wants to do it, but he's the one that's the mover shaker behind all of the different philanthropies that he's developed and that he's put my name on. And so I can't really take credit for them, but they are things that are dear to my heart. You know, once they're there, then I like one supports global projects, but has a lot of things built in for accountability. So it's a little daunting for people, I think, to take on. But they've done some great projects. And then the other one, because I grew up poor with nine, there were nine of us, and, you know, I put myself through nursing school and everything, that, that I wanted people to be able to go to PA school, you know, that might not have the same opportunities. So that's what the other scholarship is about that's in my name. So I can't really take credit too much. Well, Kathy... You know, behind every great human is probably a really great partner that has made a difference in their lives and helped them succeed as well. So I'm sure Don would agree that he'd be the first to say that this is this is his love language from your love for him. 
of course, we talked to Don. He'll be on the episode just before yours. So it's a really nice one-two punch. Kathy, are there any of those projects that you're really excited about or that give you great pride that have come from that? You know, I'm I'm happier with some of the, I'm more familiar, I should say. You know, I sort of glance over all the projects and it all happens outside of me and I read their annual reports and everything. And I was going to kind of list those in my mind so I could talk about them. But, you know, they do everything from psychiatric stuff to diabetes things to children and, you know, all kinds of projects that have good outcome data. And they involve students, they involve faculty. And so I'm pretty pleased with it all. I mean, the, the secondary impact, that scholarship and these opportunities that you and Don have provided are really, it's immeasurable, the impact that those will have downstream. The profession is indebted to, to both of you for, for that. Before we wrap up, we always like to give people the opportunity if there is anything that we didn't get to touch on today that you wanted to talk about or any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to provide, we'd certainly give you the opportunity to let us know what's on your mind. Well, I would say that I would like to see global health take more of a forefront in the PA world, which 10 or 15 years ago that APA CEO told me we're a domestic organization, period. That's it. And then it's just been all over the place with committees, subcommittees, passing it from one organization to another. It's really quite interesting. Then they'll say, oh, no, the board is going to take this on. And then then it dies there. And then, you know, things just never really go anywhere, particularly. Or if they do, it's very slow. In the meantime, all this activity is happening overseas. You know, with Europe, I mean, Germany, it's just amazing what they've done in just two or three years. They're just a phenomenon. And the Netherlands is way in the background doing all this good stuff for 15 or 20 years. And the UK had almost died. And then they came back and now they have like a whole bunch of programs, including uh, I listened to your one on Ireland and wrote to Lisa about her talk because she did such a good job. You know, so we have PA pilot from this country going to other countries, Australia, New Zealand, England, Ireland, Scotland. So that's been all real interesting. So I guess I'd just like to see some more organized effort, you know, around what are the topics that need to be considered and how do we advocate for our profession? And it can't just be the calling of a few people. You know, it really should be the calling of many. Well, Kathy, I can't thank you enough for all the, the great work that you've done for our profession and for humanity. I think it's just such a great model for others to follow. And Steph and I are deeply appreciative of your time and insights today. Well, thanks. It's been fun talking to you. We want to thank Kathy for her time and for the dedication she has provided to our profession and to global health throughout her career. She is truly one of our pioneers that paved the way for so many to serve with an equity mindset throughout the world. We would also like to extend a special thanks to our episode sponsor, Exam Master. Tune in next time as we continue the conversations with our PA colleagues and leaders around the world.